Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Our guest today is Anton Howes. He is a historian of innovation, and his first book is Arts and Minds, How the Royal Society of Arts Changed a Nation. Uh, Welcome to the show, Anton. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. So to start, what is the Royal Society of the Arts? So the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce, to give it its full 18th century title and still the title today, is basically Britain's national improvement agency for the past 270 odd years. So founded in 1754 by a bunch of inventors and scientists and a few other people. What is a national improvement agency? Oh, what is it? Well, I mean, that's actually part of the question. So one of the real challenges in writing my book about it was actually just to define what the hell this organization is, because there's no easy way to categorize it. There's nothing else quite like it that's ever really existed that's had such a broad range of activities. So the first hundred years, I guess one way to put it is that it was a subscription funded, well, basically a kind of Kickstarter, 18th century Kickstarter, where you could pool your resources and then you could vote at the kind of meetings, general meetings as to what that pool of money would be used for with the general aim of funding inventions, funding scientific advancements, funding the opening of new trade routes or creation of new business ideas and so on in a way that wouldn't or that would kind of go beyond the sorts of things that were already covered by existing systems. So they had a rule that they, generally speaking, wouldn't give an award to something that was patented. The idea being that if it was already commercial, commercially viable, that there's already resources going towards it, and they should be trying to find stuff that are edge cases, things that aren't already otherwise going to be done. With the overall effect that when they start giving out these prizes, sometimes it's for sort of public goods kinds of elements, so safety improvements, consumer safety, worker safety, there's all sorts of safety cranes, ways to make steam engines safer so they don't just blow up, ways to prevent horse and carriage accidents, train accidents, locomotive accidents, and so on, as well as giving awards to people who were too poor at the time to patent, because taking out a patent was extremely expensive back in the 18th century, people who were too rich to patent, who found it beneath them or too vulgar to be involved in you know, things like commerce, and people who had inventions that weren't necessarily worth commercializing, but weren't necessarily public goods ones either. So kind of marginal improvements. They think are still worth publicizing, getting some sort of credit for, maybe a bit of cash, maybe an honorary medal, that sort of thing. So that's the first hundred years. And then from the mid-19th century, it gets involved in exhibitions. Let's stay in the first hundred years then for a little bit. So why would kind of, so a bunch of people got together, pooled resources and said, all right, let's kind of reward both financial as well as with increases in status, this kind of broadly defined set of public goods that are currently being rewarded by either the market or the state. Why would somebody join this organization? That's a great question. So I think part of the genius that the founders come up with is to make it a charitable organization where being involved as one of the funders is seen to be something that is itself high status. 
So from the very beginning, they would publish subscription lists set telling you who exactly the other people funding are. And, you know, the more famous people you manage to get up front on that, famous scientists, aristocrats, you know, the Duke of whatever, the Duchess of, of what have you, you know, all of these different people, once they're on the list, you're like, okay, well, maybe I should be on this list too. And that's a good thing to be seen to be done. And once you get that kind of critical mass, you then often get people who are a bit more commercial, people like Thomas Chippendale, for example, the furniture maker who think, okay, if I go to these meetings, I get to sit next to a duke. You know, they're not separated in the meetings themselves. It's a much flatter kind of organization, much more democratic in that way. And maybe there's an opportunity for me to rub shoulders with it, rub elbows with these people and actually make connections as well. Actually, another great example being Adam Smith, who becomes a member seemingly when he comes down to London to publicize the wealth of nations. So clearly he's gone there to try and get a few more book sales or try to get some more connections there. So I think there's the kind of, that's one element is that in some ways, from the very beginning, the founder, William Shipley, his idea is that what it should be doing is using prizes to take advantage of people's self-interest for the public good, and then ingeniously making the organization itself take advantage of people's self-interest so they even become subscribers in the first place for public good. And in many ways, that's kind of continued to today. Although one thing that happens in the 20th century is they add in 1908, the royal to the title. That kind of adds an extra bit of prestige with people becoming fellows or members for that reason as well. Now, in my view, that's actually, I think, a wrong turn that it took. And it probably shouldn't have done that. But even for those early years, you know, once you get all of these people joining, especially high status people, it itself becomes a high status event to go to meetings. Yeah. So was this because there aren't like any kind of modern analogs that I guess I can think of, right? I mean, the closest kind of thing is maybe a charity that has an annual charity dinner where you've got a handful of the large donors and then a bunch of other people pay to attend the dinner in hopes to sit next to the donor, get drinks with them and right, be able to have a conversation. Right. But that doesn't seem to have the same kind of, like this, this the society seems to have a much broader, right? Like scope of, of what they're doing and, and kind of a much broader vision. Were there any kind of analogs when it was formed in other countries? Yeah, to a certain extent. So in some ways, it is itself inspired by an organization called the Dublin Society, now the Royal Dublin Society, in terms of the use of prizes. Now, this is basically a society of improvers who are worried in similarly kind of public good kind of ways, not as in kind of the economics term public good, but just in the public's, the good of the public kind of much broader, you know, supporting the Commonwealth kind of way, concerned with the Irish economy. And also a Scottish society of improvers, very short-lived one, which seemingly has a kind of similar idea behind it, which is to get a lot of the powers that be and a lot of the kind of influential people together in the same room to try and promote invention, improvement, scientific, technological advancement. And so those are kind of the precursors. And there is, there is one version. One thing that's interesting, actually, is that there are attempts to set this up earlier in London. There is a Société des Arts in France, interestingly set up by an Englishman and a Scotsman, so who happened to be in France at the time. But so there are these attempts to do it. But one of the problems, I think, with those ones is very often they were commercial, not the dumbest side of the Scottish Society improves, but the early ones in London, their idea was that they'd be a bit like venture capitalists and you'd be kind of funding these ideas and then you'd have a stake in the patents that would come out of the stuff that you would fund. I guess kind of similar to a lot of accelerators, startup accelerators today, where they maybe get a little bit of a stake in these things later on. I think the problem there was that it never got quite enough of a critical mass because it wasn't high status enough to be involved in that thing as one of the funders. Whereas by making it a charitable type thing where you're a subscriber, but you don't get a stake, you just get the kind of 
prestige of being someone who you can you know, like you're on a list of public spirited people essentially by being a subscriber that i think was what made the difference and made this one so much more successful such that by the 1760s just about a decade after it's founded it has over 2000 subscribers now that's a lot for the 18th century you know this maybe today that doesn't sound like very many people but back then that's that's really a lot of people especially when it includes basically every prime minister and all, almost all the ministers and those are civil servants and the best merchants and big industrialists and you know, absolutely everyone who's anyone pretty much is involved. I think that's the, there are some points of inspiration there. At least the use of prizes is something that they take inspiration from. And this idea of it being something for the public good. And the founder, William Shipley, he did it on a kind of smaller scale in Northampton, where he tried to create a fund by the local gentry and the merchants and so on, where they would buy up sheep uh, fuel in the summer when it was cheap, to then sell to the poor during the winter when it went up in price. The idea there being that he thought that the local merchants were kind of buying stuff when it was cheap and selling it when it was dear, taking advantage of the poor for their own benefit. So they, he has this kind of critique of, of what's going, of what merchants are doing, seeing them as being quite greedy and trying to find a way to use this kind of a fund, the subscription fund for the public good. But his real innovation there beyond that is to combine that kind of charitable organization with a prize fund for inventions and a kind of general one that can be used for anything and everything. The fact that it's a direct democracy where every subscriber gets one, you know, one person, one vote. Women as well as men, interestingly, which is very, very unusual for the 18th century. It's basically one of the only organizations to have done that. That, I think, is kind of another element where what it then chooses to fund is extremely broad, extremely diverse, and again, making it almost impossible to categorize it as an organization because there's nothing really quite like it today. All right. After the first, I interrupt you. After first, the first hundred years, it was focused on basically prize money for charitable improvements and relatively high dollar amounts of, right, like high cost of subscription fees. How did it then start changing after the first hundred years? Yeah, I mean, the subscription fees are large for the time, but they never... Actually, what's interesting is they get smaller over time because they don't adjust them for inflation. So it's two guineas in the 1750s, and it's still two guineas in the, like, the 20th century. And only only in the 20th century do they start kind of actually doing it for inflation. So it does actually get much, much cheaper over time. Partly, I think, because the members never want to vote for the subscription fees to go up, and because it has maintains that democratic element to it. In the 19th century, what happens is that essentially almost dies because people get less and less interested in being members. It loses some of that prestige, maybe because it gets cheaper, certainly because there's a lot more competition for other societies. In fact, a lot of societies that, that are themselves spin-offs from the Society of Arts itself, where, for example, those of them who are interested in chemistry and maybe giving kind of chemical prizes, they start getting more like talking to one another. They go to the pub afterwards or the coffee house afterwards. So they chat to one another. They start to form a separate society, often even in the original rooms, which is just about chemistry and lectures of chemistry. And it's a bit more like infotainment, which is very common today, where people love to go to lectures on things and they like to stimulate their brains in a kind of kind of entertaining kind of way. Listening to podcasts is another great example, right? That sort of thing ends up being much more popular than what the society is doing, where you're turning up every Wednesday evening and maybe Tuesdays and Thursdays for the subcommittee meetings and any member can, can go to them. And what you're doing is kind of administrative work. You're, you know, you're looking at inventions that have been submitted to you. You're assessing them. You're working out whether or not they deserve a prize. You may be consulting with experts as to how good they are. And that's kind of, that's, that's like boring work in, in a way, right? It's not something that you kind of want to expect all of your members to be doing. So they hive off, they kind of have this decline membership and they decide to become much more lecture oriented. 
they create this council so they become a representative democracy where, you know, as is so common in many charities today, you have lots of people who are kind of mental membership organizations. They, they, they elect a council to do the admin stuff for them. And they pivot in terms of activity towards exhibitions. But the idea here is that rather than trying to outdo the patent system, which itself is also improving in some ways, where patents are seen less and less as monopolies and more and more as things that transmit information and make information public rather than secret, particularly because you get lots of journals that are actually publicizing what is actually being patented with the drawings, with the specifications, which just didn't happen in the early 18th century and mid-18th century. Because that's become more common, because actually a lot of the members are themselves inventors who use the patent system all the time, they decide to pivot to exhibitions. And the idea with exhibitions is, well, they look abroad. They look to what the French had been doing to try to catch up with the British Industrial Revolution. But the French are basically looking at Britain saying, oh, my God, we're going to start losing wars if we don't start catching up. We're going to start losing our industry to Britain. We're going to start kind of losing economically, militarily, diplomatically, whatever, commercially to Britain if we don't do something to catch up. And from Napoleon's time onward, they start setting up these exhibitions of national industry, where the government basically, often actually out of patent fees, funds an exhibition where they will pay for manufacturers from all over the country to send the best of the best to a central place where, usually in Paris, where everyone, consumers can see what the latest technology is. They can start demanding stuff that, I don't know, is available in Lyon that isn't available in Paris or visitors from Brittany can see what's available in Paris and start demanding that of their producers. So you kind of have this kind of general raising of standards amongst consumers and of demand for new technology amongst consumers, exposing them to the best of the best. And also amongst the producers, showing them what the best is. So in the same way that, for example, a technology fair today would be like in a kind of industry fair, right, where, you know, around the, you've got all these big tech conferences where you can see the latest technology that's just been developed and you can you know producers can actually look at what the next person just down on the next stall or two stalls or three stalls down are doing and say damn we need to be doing that or we need to be you know outdoing these people there's a kind of emulative pressure there kind of a kind of emulative competition that starts taking place there as well and in addition to that, from the government's perspective, it actually gives them a snapshot before the era of national statistics, where this stuff is being regularly collected by a big bureaucracy, to actually see what the state of technology is in the country. So there's a kind of additional element there where then the government, because the, France is trying to do this in a very top-down way to try to emulate what had happened in Britain quite bottom-up, is to try and then work out where to focus its resources to try and encourage innovation further, where to kind of do its technology policy, seeing where they're behind and where they're ahead. So they use these exhibitions in that kind of way. And so the, the Society of Arts in, in England starts looking at these French ones and saying, okay, we need to be doing that kind of thing too. And the big culmination of that pivot is after some smaller initial exhibitions within London, just London itself, they organise the Great Exhibition of 1851, nowadays known as the first of the world's fairs, that really kicks off this idea of doing what the French have been doing nationally, but internationally where you don't just kind of compare the regions of France and their industry, but you have the industry of all nations, right? That was the official title. It was the ex Great Exhibition of the Industry of All Nations. And then you start seeing an emulator in 1855 in Paris. You see them in New York. There's actually a second one in London, 1862, which again, the Society of Arts is involved with. Basically, for the next 50 years, actually, and a bit longer, the Society of Arts is involved with either organizing the exhibitions that take place in London, or being responsible for the British sections at some of the foreign ones. So, for example, the Royal Commission that organises the British section at the Columbian Exhibition 
the really big famous one in 1893, that's all run by the Society of Arts, basically. So that becomes one of their main features. But again, what happens is, you know, exhibitions eventually go out of fashion and, you know, people start doing other sorts of things. And the society, again, has to pivot and start creating all sorts of new ways to encourage improvement in the 20th century, ranging from stuff like buying an entire village to then restore it because they get very interested in the arts and crafts movement. Lots of their members turn out to be kind of William Morris acolytes or the acolytes of his acolytes and getting very involved in that sort of thing. So creating a new fund to restore private residences that weren't being protected by planning permissions, which was still at the time for just kind of official things like government property or ancient property or ancient things like Stonehenge and what have you. And then in the 1970s, getting involved with, or 1960s, getting involved with creating actually the modern environmentalist movement through a series of conferences that bringing together people from across a whole range of areas. So, you know, the people who are involved in soil degradation or looking at rivers or looking at lakes, people who are looking at plastic waste. And then through those conferences, them all realizing, okay, this is actually a global thing. This is a much more, there's a kind of holistic view of all these things. And from that, creating, I would say, the early environmentalist movement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the Society of Arts, you know, it's a very difficult thing to characterize. Hence why I say it's it's a kind of subscription-funded national improvement agency, but improving anything and everything. Also, anything is fair game in some sense, because otherwise, I mean, you can't really pick out a particular thread of activity that it has. So in the 19th century, kind of the utilitarians got like relatively involved in the Royal Society. What did that look like? What was their influence? And how was that leveraged for some of these kind of libertarian goals? Not libertarian, utilitarian. Yeah, so utilitarian is an interesting thing. So I think this is where the pivoting to exhibitions is kind of a good example of this. So people who are, I mean, so that the main figure here is a guy called Henry Cole. And he more or less takes over the entire society. It kind of gets known as King Cole's Parliament, where people are essentially discussing his ideas and he really sets the agenda, even though he's not even technically in charge all the time. Like he's, you know, I think he's chairman for like a year or two of the council, but otherwise he's just a sort of vice president kind of figure. But he's such an aggressive or I guess kind of domineering personality is probably the best way to put it, that he really dominates the society's agenda for you know, almost half a century. So Cole was friends with John Stuart Mill, who was Bentham's key disciple. I would say the way to characterize him is utilitarianism applied. He's no great philosopher or thinker himself, but he loves to apply these things. And the key tenets there are the greatest good for the greatest number. Hence, you know, exhibitions work well in a way that particular prizes don't because prizes are focused on individuals and maybe subgroups, whereas exhibitions are aimed at the entirety of the population at, you know, or potentially even the entirety of the world. And Cole's particular twist is actually a bit more idiosyncratic in some ways, in that, like Mill, where Bentham had kind of derided things like aesthetics as being, you know, irrational or things that aren't really worth thinking about, Mill has this kind of, at one point, he basically has a nervous breakdown and becomes very enamored with poetry and art, the arts and aesthetics. And Cole, I think, also has that to the extent that his mantra in some ways is the greatest beauty for the greatest number. And so he starts to find ways to use exhibitions to actually tell people what is better taste, to raise their aesthetic standards. I imagine that Cole would think that Instagram is like the best thing ever invented because it literally puts like, you know, amazing examples of beauty right into people's faces, right into people's homes in a way that he was trying to do in a much more kind of unsophisticated way, given the technological constraints at the time. So he, for example, 
is doing stuff like writing kids' books where he's taking old stories like, you know, old fairy tales and not really changing much within the fairy tales themselves. In fact, he's doing something that's quite peculiar for the Victorians in that he's not trying to use them to moralize, to, you know, teach kids particular virtues. Instead, he's focused on the illustrations and making them as beautiful as possible, you know, creating ways to, from childhood, imbibe kids to what counts as this, like good aesthetics or creating like kind of almost like a kind of early form of Lego out of clay tiles where he gets his friend Herbert Minton, one of the great potters of the Industrial Revolution, 19th century, you know, the guy who does the tiles in the House of Parliament, for him to like help him create this kind of game for kids to then you know, use the tessellated bits of clay to create lovely mosaic patterns and so on. And so he uses exhibitions in some way. And actually even the prizes when he first starts to get involved in society is to try to create prizes for good design rather than for necessarily for invention where in particular his focus is on stuff that will put good design into the home. So he's actually quite a religious person, despite being utilitarian. But he's, you know, one of his best prizes is for the cover of the family Bible. Like, what's the best design to put on the cover there? Again, like even using people's religion to insert beauty into their homes and then using exhibitions the same way. So if you can create these examples of what the best design looks like from all over the world, people will then be inspired to do that. And in some ways, actually, the Morris the William Morris kind of focus on arts and crafts and on aesthetics is actually a kind of culmination of that kind of thing because he and other aesthetic reformers in some ways, they're very interested in trying to find the underlying rules of beauty. As utilitarians, they're looking for the rational basis of what we find beautiful, what we find aesthetic. And he uses, you know, from the proceeds of the Great Exhibition, because it's such a profitable event, this is, by the way, you know, this is there is government involvement on a kind of strategic level, setting up a royal commission to oversee it. But it doesn't use any taxpayer funding at all. It is completely a kind of self-funded thing. They raise subscriptions and then based off promises of subscriptions, they raise a loan. And because it has a huge profit, they then you know, actually the Royal Commission for the Great Exhibition of 1851 still exists to manage the money that they made because they had such a massive profit from it. So they're still dispersing prizes for, you know, like science postdocs and PhD students and so on. But they also use that fund to buy a huge amount of land in West London, what's now called South Kensington. In fact, a name created by Cole because he didn't like Brompton nearby, which was a much kind of less fancy name. There's Kensington Palace just to the north. And so he creates the South Kensington Museum, nowadays known as the Victorian Albert Museum. And that actually renames the area. So it's a kind of, you can really see his stamp there in a way that you know, places try to rebrand their districts of a city all the time, and it never works, right? I'm sure you can think of examples from New York, from DC, like my own area in, in London actually tried to do something similar where it tried to call itself Midtown, you know, and that never took off. But he actually managed to get people to rename a whole area through his ingenuity, essentially, by, by naming the museum that way. And so that whole area becomes known as Albertopolis because of Prince Albert, the kind of figurehead of the Great Exhibition, president of the RSA at the time whom Cole manages to persuade to get involved with the Great Exhibition, to get involved in this whole project. And nowadays, it's, kind of, it's the Museum Mile. It's where you see the Natural History Museum, the Science Museum, the Victorian Albert Museum, there's the Royal Albert Hall. There's all of this kind of, it's an agglomeration of cultural institutions. Again, using that kind of utilitarian mindset there, which is that let's have this concentrated center for all these things and then use it as the kind of hub to then have cultural spokes out in the countryside, you know, sending stuff that isn't on display out to regional museums, trying to then spread culture 
or really aesthetics in his point of view. And then people like Albert add science to the mix as well to the rest of the country. So I don't think this was in your book, but like one, was there a progressive movement in like the UK in a similar way there was to the US? And two, did the Royal Society play a role in that? How do you mean by progressive movement in the US? I'm not familiar with US history as much. So like basically in the late 19th, early 20th century, there were a lot of reformers that took on kind of machine politics in major cities. So like in New York, it's Tammany Hall. And these reformers kind of wanted to apply like scientific management skills to government. And so they would come in and say, okay, we want there to be a budget. Like I think in New York, there wasn't a budget to like the 1880s or 1890s or something ridiculous like that. Like we want to know where the money is going. We want to set up like formal departments and bureaucracies. We want like all of the civil servants not to get fired every time there's a change in administration, but have like a political layer on top and then kind of civil service layer that's entrenched in a bureaucracy underneath it. And they were also kind of are associated with rallying against many of the major companies and like monopolies of the era. So I think to an extent, then, the utilitarian movement from the 1810s, 20s onwards is similar in that respect. So one of the big features originally of that movement is actually trying to rationalize the law. So you get people like Henry Bruin, who had been friends with Bentham, or kind of imbibed elements of Bentham's philosophy there, where they're trying to kind of make the law more rational, have fewer of these crazy medieval exceptions and try to do it that way. And you certainly have administrative changes, which I think they're often pushing for, at least behind the scenes. What's interesting, actually, is they're a tiny movement. I mean, it's very few MPs, very few lords, and yet they have this absolutely huge influence because they're very, very good at taking over institutions and then suiting them towards their own ends. They're very good at setting up subcommittees that then stay around for years and years and years. So, I mean, actually, another great example here would be education. This is something I do mention in the book, which is that effectively they managed to build a state education system by taking over certain very obscure institutions that they can then leverage in that way. When you say they, are you referring to the utilitarians? Yeah, the utilitarians, yeah. And they're very good at finding allies. So when they find allies, and if they can find common ground with someone, they'll then use them and kind of bring them into the movement, even though they have slightly different agendas. So, you know, Cole is obsessed with aesthetics, but he often works with the free trade movement, which is quite large. People like Richard Cobden, they, he works with the peace movement to get support for the Great Exhibition because there's this idea that this exhibition of industry by people competing peacefully with industry rather than through war, this will actually create better bonds between different countries. The more commerce you have between different countries, the less chance of them going to war there is. There is a lot of these kind of, ideas that he's drawing from, where he isn't actually doesn't necessarily even believe this stuff himself. He just pragmatically knows that these are the people to target, that there's a groundswell of support he can draw upon. But with education, one of the so the key issue here is that the Society of Arts gets involved just after the Great Exhibition with setting up a union of mechanics institutions. And these are essentially worker run and worker created institutions for their own self-education, where they pool their resources to invite lecturers, to create libraries, to get scientific equipment, to essentially create their own education, almost like community colleges, but bottom-up ones where it's actually created by the students themselves. And often, you know, having these things at night or in the evening because that's when they're not working. And so the site gets involved with trying to create a kind of centralized hub that will help them, you know, buying textbooks en masse at cheaper rates, you know, buying scientific equipment, buying, they create, they use a prize system to create a kind of cheap art palette set, you know, the kind of 
the standard thing that you get for kids where it's like a few paint brushes and there's like different bits of paint that you can use, like a kind of standardized kit that can be produced in bulk. And also, you know, touring various countries and creating a kind of there's a, there's a union effectively of these institutions created for its own management. And one of the kind of, again, utilitarian ideas there is to is it seems almost impossible to create a state education system because schools at the time were dominated by religious groups. So you have Anglican schools, you have dissenter schools, so various other sects that are kind of controlling education. And whenever you have the idea of state schools being mooted, people say, well, what are they going to teach? Are they going to teach the established religion, which is the Anglican Church, or are they going to teach one of these other ones? If you say you're not going to teach any religion at all, that's even worse. That's like atheism. You know, this is completely unacceptable. And um, both sides oppose that. And so the utilitarian idea is to create examinations where you can have state-run examinations where, based on the results of the students, it's actually one of Cole's ideas as well, to a certain extent, at least the further application of this, based on the results of the students, you'll then pay the teachers a bonus, you know, based on how many A's they manage to get. Um, and that way, you don't actually need to control the schools at all. You just control the examinations. You make sure these examinations work in terms of the qualifications, and then teachers will teach to those tests whoever controls those schools. And so that's that kind of reverse way of taking control of education from the state's point of view. And so they first apply this by the civil service itself. This is one of the Bentham's kind of ideas. A bunch of utilitarians kind of push for that. Then they work out that they can do this via the universities, so Oxford and Cambridge. They persuade Oxford and Cambridge to set up school examinations because what was happening is a lot of people would take the entrance exams for the universities. They would get an acceptance offer if they did very well. And then they wouldn't actually go to the university. They would take the acceptance offer and then show that to an employer and say, look, I'm good enough to get into the university. <laughs> and so how about you hire me as a clerk or something based on that? And so, you know, this is wasteful for the university. So they were like, okay, well, we'll just create a better system where we'll have local exams for school leavers run by us. And then the Society of Arts itself you know, adds to that system. This is all in the 1850s, kind of all happening at once. Basically the same groups of people, though, again, utilitarian reformers. And using the Society of Arts, they do this for the mechanics institution. So one of the ideas they have to revitalize them, there was this concern that they were drifting towards infotainment and actually entertainment, away from the kind of roots, working class roots that they used to have. They're becoming too middle class in some ways, and that there's not enough actual education going on within them. There is this idea that, okay, well, if we're going to actually encourage people to take education seriously, we need to give them, you know, something lucrative at the end of it. And the best way you can do that is through qualification, meaningful qualifications. And so the Society of Arts sets up an examination system, which it actually runs as an examination board right up until the 1980s before it eventually, you know, hives it off. And it actually its descendant nowadays called OCR. Interestingly, a re-merger of the Oxford, Cambridge and RSA examination boards, the original 1850s ones, is still an examination board that, you know, handles like state qualifications today. So it's a kind of very long lasting impact there of using kind of through civil society, but civil, civil society groups actually creating a state system. And the thing they also do is they try, so Cole ends up, because he's a civil servant at the same time as doing all of this stuff, he ends up, after the Great Exhibition, being in control of his own department of science and art, a kind of special department set up specifically for his own ends in some ways. And what he does is he uses the study of arts to do trial exams to see if there's demand for certain subjects to be taught. And when those work, the Department of Science and Art then takes over those examinations and offers the bonuses for teachers that they would 
have. And so he kind of uses the Society of Arts to kind of trailblaze a bit, to test the waters, a bit of a kind of like a, a kind of little trial of things first before then using, bringing the government in and kind of creating the you know, scaling things up to a much more a larger level. So you talked a little bit about how the RSA influenced the environmental movement and helped really get it set up in the UK. I'm less familiar with kind of the UK history of the environmental movement, but in the US, it's always it fascinated me because there's basically like a 10 year period from the publication of, shoot now, I'm forgetting the book. Silent Spring? Uh, yeah, Silent Spring. And like, right, the book is published, and then 10 years later, you have the EPA, you have the Clean Water Act, you have the Clean Air Act, you have NEPA, right? All of these major environmental kind of legislation is passed, and right, these environmental principles are still really embedded in a huge amount of aspects in civil society today. And obviously, there was a lot of like, right, background before the publication of Silent Spring, right? You had Teddy Roosevelt doing conservationism. There were all these groups, there were all these discussions happening for a long time. But really, from the moment of like coalescing to massive impact was like very short. If you look at the history of a lot of, I don't know, broad social movements. So, I mean, one is that like approximately analogous to what happened in the UK, and, and what was the process of the the Royal Society for the Arts in that? Just elaborate on that a little bit more. Yeah. So, I think in some ways it's the same springboard. It's from Silent Spring. I think that is one of the major influences. But what really happens is there's a kind of I guess the way to put this is that in the 1950s or late 1940s, early 1950s, you start to see there are a lot of conservationists, people who are, they kind of, they have like, I don't know, they love beetles or they love particular kinds of birds or like a particular area of wetlands and they want to preserve its beauty. So it's often very aesthetically focused. And for the society, it's a kind of natural progression from being very concerned, thanks to William Morris and his acolytes and their acolytes, kind of inspired by this search for beauty through kind of bottom-up artisanal ways. I mean, one of the th- big things is they're inspired by, they noticed that, so Ruskin had been writing about how the Middle Ages was, you know, full of all this beauty from an artisanal way rather than kind of top-down from the kind of high art kind of uh, people, you know, painters and architects and sculptors. And the great exhibition solidifies that because people are amazed by the stuff that's being created in terms of design by Indian artisans. And they think, okay, clearly they have an eye for beauty here. And it's, there's something about craftsmanship that's really important there. And so in the 20th century, that kind of merges, I think, to a concern not just for the built environment, but for the natural environment. But they're not using the word environment. It's still kind of natural beauty. People don't really talk about, like, envi- if you're an environmentalist in the 1960s, that means you're probably someone who thinks that nurture is more important than nature in the raising of children. It's nothing to do with conservation or, like, nature in a kind of more general sense. So you're starting to get this concern about beauty of the countryside. You know, England's lovely green hills and trying to preserve that, a kind of very like J.R.R. Tolkien kind of approach, you know, the beauty of the Shire versus like subjecting the stuff to industry. But it's very segmented. And so what happens is that in the 1960s, you do have the publication of Science Spring. You do have the founding of various organizations a little earlier, like the World Wildlife Fund, um, you have people interested in conservation, but they're not a movement with this kind of much broader conception. And so interestingly, this actually is something that comes from Prince Philip, who recently died. So the husband of our current queen, who became president of the RSA in the 1950s, right after the queen, so pretty much almost immediately after the queen became the queen. And so he's kind of a young man at the time looking for things to do. And one of his big interests is conservation of nature, um, he's great friends with a lot of these people obsessed with birds in particular. And, you know, he's a bird watcher, essentially. 
And so he gets kind of involved in some ways amongst some of these groups. And they hold a series of, well, they hold this exhibition of wildlife. I think it's 1960, 1961. I can't remember exactly now. And off the back of that, he, the story goes that he inquires, oh, do you all know each other? Because there's all these different stores of all these different groups. And the answer apparently is no, that they don't, hadn't actually been talking together. They hadn't actually had a movement around conservation. And so he suggests that the Society of Arts gets involved with doing the kind of administrative element of organizing the conferences. And so there are a series of conferences called um, the Countryside in 1970, looking forward to 1970. And they have a major, major impact. It's just through kind of putting people together in the same room and talking about these issues that are sort of sort of related, but not quite related, that they start to kind of form this much broader picture. And so they managed to get the EU, or not really the EU at the time, but the kind of the European community to designate 1970, looking ahead to it, as the year of conservation. They do send delegates to the White House when it started to consult on conservation issues. They do manage to get in 1967 a new act passed to create more national parks effectively in the UK because they're worried about with the rise of the motor car and its proliferation that people are all going to be going to to visit nature and thus ruin nature. And so they need to create more spaces to kind of take the burden off particular areas of natural beauty. And 1970 becomes actually this threshold year where in the UK you see the creation of a Department of the Environment where for the first time on a Gallup poll ever, you see the environment being something that voters are taking seriously as an issue. Like it's like it's actually even registering as an issue at all. You soon in the 1970s see the founding of Greenpeace and lots of early precursors to various green parties not just in the UK, but in the rest of Europe and in the US as well. So it seems as though it's from that kind of collection of people. This is a difficult thing to prove, right? We're talking about history of ideas here. But it seems as though this is where a lot of these ideas that have already been kind of floating around, but in a very disparate, disconnected way, it's through those connections that it then actually has this very global impact. It strikes me that the UK seems to be the leader here, interestingly. And I think thanks to those conferences. And then it's conferences sending those delegates who are then influencing people in Europe as a whole, in the United States and so on. But yeah, so Silent Spring, so for listeners, if they're not aware of it, this is the book where DDT was found to be in Californian mothers' like breast milk. So the interesting twist there being that nature seems to be having an impact on humans, not just on nature as this separate thing. And so environmentalism as an idea, kind of the big step in terms of innovating ideologically there, or changing the ideas around things, is this idea that nature isn't just nature and it's something for nature lovers. It's that if we don't do something about nature, it's then an impact on us and that the survival of humans as a species is also potentially at risk. And that's something that, like, it's, it's kind of there, sort of, but not quite in those sorts of terms and certainly not thinking of nature as a whole. Cool. And what does the RSA do today? What can we expect from it over the next 20 or 30 years? I mean, it's an interesting question. In fact, they've just, they're about to have a new CEO. So the one who was, the person who was CEO, Matthew Taylor, when I was writing the book, has just left. The new one's coming in in September 2021. And I think what's happened to the organization is it's now very dependent on individual personalities of its leaders. So because of changes to the way that kind of charity law and company law work in this country, it is now much less like it was representative democracy for years and years. 
And things have changed now that it actually has a much more formalized, more ordinary structure as a charity of, you know, there's a board of trustees and yeah, there are fellows, but they have sort of input. In some ways they can raise concerns, but they're not actually the people who actually own the organization beyond things like AGMs, right? Which is kind of very ordinary charity structure. What that means though, is that now I think the people who run it, so interestingly, the CEO as a position emerged is a direct evolution from what used to be the secretary's role. So literally the person who took the minutes of the democratic meetings of all the members in the 18th century is now the person who actually runs the thing and you know, provides strategic direction. And so what we're likely to see, I have no idea. I mean, it really depends on what the, the incoming CEO wants to do with it. But my kind of impression is that for the last few decade or so, the really big thing that people have noticed is that there are a lot of members or a lot of people who've signed up to be fellows of the RSA. And fellowship, by the way, the, the unfortunately misleading thing is when in the 1910s, they introduced the term fellow instead of member. It started to create the impression and, and, the, and the use of royal in 1908 rather than just society of arts. It created the impression that this is that when you become a fellow, it's like it's like you're being recognized for your achievement. And that's not the case at all. It's exactly how it used to be in the past, in that you're essentially just a subscriber to the fund that runs the organization. Just because you have FRSA after your name doesn't actually mean anything, because you can essentially anyone could sign up right now. You just go to the website and become a fellow just by paying the subscription fees by kind of creating and becoming part of this network. And I think the missed opportunity that not just the incoming CEO, but the, the last one as well saw was that there's now about 30,000 of these people, still very constant in the UK, but now all over the world as well. And the missed opportunity is that we need to be doing something with those people. You've kind of got a ready-made pressure group right there, but in search of, like, it's not clear what exactly that pressure group is going to do. And so managing that pressure group or managing that group of people and then and utilizing the members to do something, that's the kind of big question. I'm, I'm not sure where that's going to go. So, you know, the last chapter of my book on the RSA is kind of, I think it was a social movement in search of a cause, you know, where there's like, we don't know quite what it's going to direct itself to doing. And I think that's going to very much depend on those in charge, and, but also the members to make themselves heard. And if they have a project, they should be like Henry Cole in the 19th century and actually try to push the organization to do something towards their own ends because it's so broadly constituted encouragement of arts, manufacturers and commerce. That literally means everything, right? And it has done everything. It's done stuff with the environment. It's done stuff with cooking. It set up the fourth plinth on Trafalgar Square, which is now a kind of rotating article. There's not a permanent exhibit there. There's not a permanent statue. There. People like there's a new exhibit there to show modern art every few months. Like those are random things. And so you can use this organization to do something quite interesting there. But I think that full potential hasn't quite yet been, been realized, even if I think in some ways it's on its way kind of infrastructurally towards being able to do so. Is progress studies a new RSA? That's a really interesting question. Really, really interesting. So the way I think about some of the roles... Maybe before you answer, I can give my own take, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested what, I, what I kind of see as the analogy is you have, at least when the RSA was started, there were a small number of people that were interested in this kind of general, broad level improvement that basically created a social network. Obviously, the RSA had some form of institutional structure, what progress studies currently doesn't. But there was this relatively small number of people who were interested in this, like, very broad set of improvements and began to network to accomplish that, where at least as I interpret you describing the RSA is kind of after that first hundred years, it started to do 
but a little bit less of this broad improvement and like kind of became a little bit more narrow, a little bit more focused. And then all of these kind of splinter groups like split off. But if we look at society today, like there aren't that many, like, I don't know, like there, there are a handful of these like kind of splinter groups, whatever you want to call them, but they're mostly affiliated with the tech industry. Like there isn't this broad desire for like technological innovation. And like when I live in DC and I talk with people who aren't like, I don't know, very online and like progress or progress adjacent, like most people are just like completely unaware of the like technological stagnation or if they are aware of it, they argue that it's not necessarily a bad thing because of like environmental or sustainability or like whatever reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I can see some similarities. I mean, one thing I'd say is that in some ways, the society of arts becoming more and more narrow and having to find new niches all the time is actually a sign of its own success. Institute, the, often the splinter groups create institutions that are just as long lasting and still with us. And it just means that once they create a project and then it kind of goes off on its own, its job is done. It then has to find a new thing to do with its fund and with its members. And so in some ways, that's a good thing. You know, the World's Fair still exists. They've continued to this day. They started the whole thing with the Great Exhibition. Now, I think things have changed. And, you know, one of my one of my things right now is that I, I hope that there will be, you know, I've, I've put out, I've written quite a few times about how there should be a new version of the Great Exhibition. There should be new exhibitions of industry that are focused on industry in the, in the way that the original one was. Because I think that kind of element has been lost from the recent World's Fairs. They've become much more bureaucratized and much more nation focused. They're much more about countries selling themselves kind of for touristy kind of ways or prestige reasons rather than like a slightly different version of the Olympics now. Yeah, they're like a kind of PR Olympics in some ways. Sometimes they're, they're more interesting than that. I mean, I'm not going to say that that's been kind of always the case, but I think there are big differences some of the best World's Fairs, I think, were still done in the 20th century. But I think the 20th century is when it's, you start to see a kind of a loss of that original vision for what the Great Exhibition had done. So let's say you organize a new World's Fair. What are the key exhibitions that you would include in it? And how would you kind of structure that, that engagement? So the structures are an interesting question. I think you want to show as broad as possible the range of industries. You want to show as, as much cutting edge stuff as possible. I mean, here's like, I'll just kind of paint you a picture, right? Let's say there's one organized in 10 years' time. I want to see woolly mammoths that have been resurrected and are like a kind of woolly mammoth petting zoo, right, for kids. I want to see... It's like, I mean, you have to miniaturize the woolly mammoths, maybe miniature woolly mammoths. Okay, and maybe woolly mammoth. Yeah, sure. Like, they're big, you know, like, 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 there's like, like one element is like Jurassic Park, but without the danger, let's hope, or kind of with... Or even just not even woolly mammoths necessarily, just like a few species that recently went extinct that are now back. And we've been able to, you know, thanks to advances, we've been able to do that. And let's show some existing technologies. Let's show people in mech suits. Like this is something of sci-fi, but people literally use mech suits right now all the time, you know, to lift extremely heavy loads with kind of mechanical assistance. Let's show that let's have people there, you know, using artificial limbs, which have now become extremely advanced, where they're able to like read brainwaves and actually do extremely sophisticated things with their arms. Let's have like panel interviews with these people, talk about how that technology works, talk about where it's going next. Let's have a few stalls on that. Let's have stalls with showing literally like the latest stuff in aging research you know let's let's actually literally have some mice there that are like living some ridiculous you know amount of time just to show that we're already kind of already on the cusp of some of these things let's you know the start of the event should coincide with a rocket launch live streamed 
from you know some massive screen you know it's not going to be actually there there but it could be something that happens to coincide with the opening of it and like a particularly good one where we're going to send someone to mars or send someone again to the moon or you know do some kind of big high profile thing you know those are just a few examples but you know and, and then you can combine that with you know what's the latest in i don't know like the most advanced toilet that's just been invented or the most like what's the latest in not just the kind of more visible things like, you know, the latest phone or or things like that, but what's the latest in augmented reality and virtual reality? Let's have people having a go on these things. Let's have this kind of you know massive collection of different things from all different sectors of the economy, including things like agriculture, including, you know, the latest innovation in food, in beverages, in ceramics, you know, in anything that you can think of, there should be an element of that there. And you can kind of vary that with you know, each iteration. So it doesn't have to be that you have everything, everything in the particular first one, but then in five years time or four years time or whatever, you can then have a kind of snapshot of that. And then people can start to notice improvements. They can see, oh, I remember when it was just this, like a few years ago, and now I'm seeing it's, it's like advanced so much there. Whereas what's happened with kind of modern stuff is especially when governments get involved, you end up with things like the Millennium Dome, where there's like these kind of structured exhibits that are meant to be about, about some kind of theme like science or like technology. They don't actually show you the technology itself and let you experience it. You know, let's have the latest textile machinery you know, on show actually making T-shirts right there for people to see because no one sees this anymore because stuff is so mechanized now that like maybe five engineers or something get to see these things actually in action. And people don't even realize what our machinery is currently doing day after day after day and has been for actually for, you know, for quite a few decades because it's become so advanced. I mean, I, I've seen videos. One of my favorite accounts to follow on Twitter is, is one called Machine Picks, as in P-I-X, where it literally is just like a small GIF, like a small video of just machinery that currently already exists working. And it's magical. I mean, it's really incredible just to see the kinds of things that already happen. It'd be amazing to see that not just when scrolling through on your phone, but seeing this stuff in person and seeing lots of having millions of people potentially seeing this stuff in person. Do you know Cameron Wise? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I do. We talked a little bit about the exhibition idea. I mean, he's, it's very exciting to see what he's doing because while I've thought a lot about this and I know a lot of the history and a lot of the pitfalls to avoid, I think he's the person to actually do it given he has that energy behind it. So, you know, I'm happy to help in any way or consult on, on lessons there. You know, government, I think maybe there's a role for involvement because I think it helps that you have kind of official credence to these things. But there's always also a risk that when, when governments, local governments as well, when they get too involved, that then they have an anti-commerce bias. And so they're not going to allow companies to essentially advertise by having stuff there. And you need a way to be able to manage the competing interests of people who want to showcase their stuff to the public. Because frankly, there are still limits, right, on how much you can show at one time. So structuring it, kind of the curation element is going to be really important with these sorts of events. But let's have loads of them. You know, he should be setting up his one. Let's, let's have other attempts at the same time. And let's see which ones work out the best. We should have national ones as well as international ones going on all the time. We should have localized ones as well, perhaps. How do we raise the social status of inventors? Yeah, so this is a great question, something I've thought quite a bit about. It's interesting how much policy, innovation policy, focuses on pecuniary advantages or rather incentives. That you know, How much money do we give to inventors? How much money do they make from venture capital or selling things or, or from patents and so on? And we rarely think about social status. Now, interestingly, I think 
the US does this quite well, or in some ways the technology sector seems to be creating its own kind of status in that a lot of people who are famous tech entrepreneurs, they're very good at then becoming high status people through their essays, becoming venture capitalists, giving back to the innovation ecosystem in some ways. It's more of a challenge in other countries, which I think should be competing and really kind of keeping the US on its on its toes, where status should be, be we should be finding any way possible to raise the status of inventors in throughout the whole the whole world and in each and every country. So I recently published a paper for the Entrepreneurs Network, where I, you know, I do a bit of work on policy stuff on how there should be a new order of chivalry specifically for recognizing inventors. So we've got this kind of order of the British Empire, which is, you know, gives out knighthoods and memberships and officerships and they're a commander, like there are different ranks of it. And it's quite well recognized within British society. If you say you've got an OBE or an MBE or a CB or a knighthood, people know what that means and it's a, it's a mark of distinction. But interestingly, even when entrepreneurs or inventors actually receive these things, it's usually for their philanthropy. It's usually that they became rich, they gave a lot of that money to charity, and then they get the award. It's not that they actually get rewarded for the inventions or the innovations themselves, even though those are often the things that actually have a huge impact on people's lives. You know, they create jobs, they advance the economy, they provide services that just weren't available before. Those are the things we should be recognizing as well. Because a lot of other walks of life, you know, if you're an actor or a musician or a sports person or, you know, even a politician or, you know, these are things that come with their own fame and prestige, whereas I think in general, innovation, entrepreneurship don't. You know, very few people become famous for those things. And we should be celebrating the marginal improvers as much as we are the kind of people who get, you know, the Steve Jobs and the Elon Musks. And the people yeah. I mean, if you, if you have like, like entrepreneurship does like, get some prestige, at least for the winners, but like innovation doesn't. And I mean, just reading my like, history of 19th century like inventors, I mean, they're all insane. They all have like multiple screws loose in their head. And so even if they do like become very wealthy, they're oftentimes not people who would be like accepted by polite society yeah. just because they tend to be very kind of brusque, very rude. They, they are unable to hold a conversation on kind of topics that interest the average person or the kind of current social elite. And like, in terms of like, I don't know, another kind of thing that popped into my mind in terms of raising the social status of inventors is just having a little bit more acceptance of kind of neurotypical people. And not trying to kind of beat everybody into the same box as I think a lot of our current education systems do. Yeah, and I think I mean that's there's certainly at least some overlap I think between those kind of groups. And yeah, that's actually another great point is that a lot of innovation isn't actually amongst entrepreneurs even. Like if someone makes an existing big company better or its products better, that's still an innovator just because just because they didn't set out on their own to create a startup and then scale that up doesn't mean that they're any less innovative. And the same with people who are innovating within public service. You know, if civil servants are creating innovations, like we should be encouraged that as much as possible because, you know, the ease of paying taxes, it's, it really sucks to pay taxes. We should make that easier and much, you know, the UI of paying taxes, right? The user experience or user interface of doing, like in, involving us with the government. Like there's a lot of tweaks, a lot of improvement that could be done there. And we should be recognizing the civil servants are responsible for that sort of thing as well. And rewarding them as much as possible. So, you know, there's people talk about entrepreneurs, extremely ugly word, you know, but actually just innovators or improvers in general should be rewarded through whatever prestige systems we have because they're not going to get, as you say, necessarily the money from it. And I, you know, I doubt they're going to get the fame from it either. It's just not something that happens. I mean, this is something that should also be happening throughout civil society in general. You know, it should be happening in the media. You know, I'm 
it worries me a lot when people become tech journalists. They seem to have a few years where they love technology and then eventually they seem to hate technology, or at least technologists and not the people they're involved with. Maybe they become they, they just they kind of become disillusioned with, with certain people. I don't know what happens, but it seems as though there's often then kind of the sorts of places that would that would originally start doing puff pieces start doing kind of attack pieces that you know are often unwarranted, and we need something in between. You need something that's covering technology and celebrating progress for when there is progress, but also kind of has a bit of skepticism. Right? There, there needs to be a kind of middle ground there. The same with the kind of cultural media. You know, it's it's shocking how few films there are or TV shows that actually show invention or even improvement as actual improvement rather than just being a, like I've seen I, for research purposes, I watched a whole bunch of shows about Nikola Tesla. And what's amazing is all, you know, all, nearly all of the movies about him are rubbish. I mean, honestly, garbage, they're extremely boring because they focus overwhelmingly on his personal life and not actually on what he was doing and t- explaining and telling us and showing us what, what's actually happening. And that's something that can be done. You know, I think, you know, even complex ideas that, you know, as you know, the, as, as everyone knows, you know, one of the big talents of people who are involved in cultural media is to take complex ideas and simplify them, make them understand or make them legible to people more, more broadly. It can be done with, if it can be done with quantum physics, it can definitely be done with, you know, the science of the 19th century. And it's just something you don't see. If you have $100 million, how do you change that? $100 million, gosh. I think you should start, at least some of that money should go towards producing TV shows, I think, probably is the medium that will work better than movies that are specifically kind of that meet certain requirements. So here are my requirements for TV shows. So we need a progress TV studio. Yeah, the 22nd century Fox, you could call it. Uh, <laughs> but here are my requirements. It should be a show. It should show invention as improvement. It should show how marginal these things are. And that's really important, I think, because it shows accessibility, which is kind of second element, which is that you shouldn't have... It can't just be that when you, whenever you show an inventor, they're just a genius who like just looks at a whiteboard and is able to then just draw out the thing just from that. You need to actually show the process, right? So showing the process needs to be marginal and it needs to be accessible. So often, like I, I rate highly shows or movies that show invention where it's just an ordinary person doing it right, perhaps clever, but not like Tony Stark level genius where he works out time travel literally in an evening, right? That's ridiculous. And that's inaccessible. It actually harms, I think, the message that you want there, which is to make it something that more people become inventors by watching. And coolness factor. So Tony Stark does well in that he's pretty cool and people want to be like Iron Man and the kids want to be like Iron Man. So you do want to have the coolness factor in there as well, I think. We need the wire, but focused on the first 20 years of the RSA. Yeah, that would be a fun one. Or even just like the engineers who behind the steam engines, the early steam engines, to show what they're doing. Where's our show about James Watt? Where's our show about the invention or the spread of inoculation or vaccination? Where's our show, like the original ones? Where's our shows about Louis Pasteur? And it's not even necessary that you need to find kind of great men and women of history who are inventors. You, I think actually even better perhaps to show that sometimes these people are in an ecosystem, that there's lots of inventors around and that they're kind of bouncing ideas off one another. Yeah, focusing on the invention itself. And I think that can be done well. So my, my go-to example for this, by the way, is a film called Padman. Hindi films about the guy who became quite famous quite recently, sort of a national hero in India, for inventing a way for the villagers themselves and, and women in villages in rural India to create their to make their own sanitary pads. 
which is breaking so many taboos as well. And it's actually, I mean, I was like crying many, many times watching this movie. It's a, unfortunately, it's like half an hour too long. There's like a bit at the end where they get a bit too gratuitous with it. There's like a whole extra love story that's like inserted in unnecessarily. But when it shows invention, when it shows the way he's improving things, like you actually understand the technical limitations that he's trying to overcome. You, you can see step by step how he's going through the inventive process. You can see his improving mentality that he's someone who loves to see things and tweak them and improve them and perfect things, to optimize things. And I think kind of getting across that mentality is the main thing that I want to, you know, this is the background to all of my research, all of my work that I do is that I want to find ways to spread these things further so that people can learn from the institutions of the past, like the Society of Arts, like the Great Exhibition, kind of pick out those lessons and apply them to today. When did the Industrial Revolution start? That's an interesting question because... In some ways, the Industrial Revolution is a bit of a misnomer. And really, the better way to think about it is that there is in Britain in the late 16th, especially in the mid, by the mid-17th century, an acceleration of improvement. So this optimizing mentality is spreading to more and more people, and more and more people are applying it to lots and lots of different industries, from agriculture to watchmaking to landscape gardening, in, or everything in between, pottery and ceramics, to food, to whatever, as well as steam engines and the kind of famous things like cotton and iron and coal, that across the board, we see all sorts of improvement. And then that kind of manifests itself later on as something that is called the Industrial Revolution, that certain sectors end up being the most successful ones, and that we see this kind of economic growth that comes off the back of those earlier inventions as well. Sometimes for worse as well. I mean, you know, some of this invention is used for increasing military capabilities and then the spread of you know, colonies and, and imperialism to the world as a whole. And, you know, there are negative side effects sometimes of this acceleration innovation. But ultimately, the kind of common cause there is, is that there's just more in people improving things across the board. Why didn't the Industrial Revolution occur in the Netherlands? Yeah. So that's, I guess for, for listeners, the thing to, to couch there is that there is this Dutch golden age of the late 16th, early 17th centuries. And even kind of 100 years later, when Adam Smith looks at the world, he focuses on the Netherlands as being the height of opulence. Like this is a country that has done extremely well at kind of getting the maximum gains you can get from trade. Part of what happens in the Netherlands, I think, is that, I mean, partly it's just quite unlucky. It gets invaded quite a few times. It's not in a great geographical position right next to a bunch of big enemies. France likes to invade it. Britain likes to invade it. But also it's very, very focused on certain sectors of the economy as being the ones that really get very large, kind of very murk kind of focused on, on shipping, focused on trade. And it doesn't seem to have that breadth of different industries that you see being developed in Britain. In some ways, though, you know, there, while there is this stagnation of the economy in the 18th century, that's not to say that there isn't quite a lot of technological innovation before then. I just think that in some ways, Britain takes institutions that are developed in the Netherlands. It improves them. I mean, that's the kind of key thing is that even had Britain not existed, I think that the acceleration of innovation would have happened at some place. In Europe, perhaps in Japan, I think there are signs of it happening all over the world, actually, to a certain extent. But Britain is just a bit faster at applying these things. Like it has the edge, sometimes a very marginal edge, in developing the kind of cheerleading institutions to support innovation, but that kind of ecosystem element where inventors are not just inventing things, but also supporting the next generation of inventors in a, in a way that, you know, even today seems quite unique to parts of the United States, right? Where the Silicon Valley 
ecosystem is, is kind of unique in some way because the inventors are not just getting rich and then kind of you know, going off to the country in big houses and kind of keeping themselves to themselves. They're often using their, the proceeds of invention to then support the next generation of inventors and invest in them and kind of become venture capitalists and you know, set up things like Y Combinator. And that. Like the ecosystem creation element there is really interesting. And there, I think just other countries in Europe are just not quite as good at doing this as, as Britain is. And that's kind of for a variety of almost accidental reasons, in some ways, because the British state is actually very bad at supporting invention very early on. And so a lot of bottom up institutions like the Society of Arts, right, the kind of a civil society organization are created to fill those gaps and end up being much more robust and much more long lasting than having to rely on state involvement where, you know, priorities change and one ruler loves scientists and one of them is, you know, less interested and, and you kind of get these ups and downs. What inventions were invented after their time and what does that tell us about the nature of invention? And you're hitting all my best hits here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so for inventions after their time, this is a great question. So one of the things that's really interesting that I've noticed is that nearly everything that's been invented could have been invented earlier. Nearly every invention, and there are exceptions to this when they rely perhaps on a particular scientific breakthrough, but nearly every invention, like there are actually, the conditions are right, at least economically, or at least in terms of you know, material capabilities and the understanding that we have for them to have happened. Like, my go-to example is John Kay's flying shuttle. This is an improvement to the loom, right? Something that has existed since time immemorial. I mean, literally shuttles are mentioned in the Bible, in the Old Testament, right? These are really ancient things. The weaving wool, it's an improvement for weaving wool originally, although it becomes famous for its application to cotton. Wool is the ancient, 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 like, industry of England. So this is something that could have happened, you know, for centuries, at least in England itself. And it literally involves adding a bit of wood and some string, right? Okay, there's, like, a lot of details need to be worked out in terms of how you add that wood and that string. But there's no new materials, there's no new, new scientific, you know, kind of advancements that need to be relied upon for this thing. This thing could have been invented for thousands of years. It just isn't. And even in terms of the demand story, there doesn't seem to be anyone in particular because there was always an incentive to speed up weaving. There's always been an incentive to do that thing better, invest something, and then become the rich person off it. There's nothing about the economic structure at the time that seems to suggest that it was unique in any way compared to 100, 200, 300, 1,000 years earlier. It seems very unlikely that this wouldn't have happened at all. And in fact, even in terms of social barriers. You know, maybe you might say, okay, well, maybe this thing was invented in the past, but it was attacked by the weavers who you know, were threatened by the competition. Well, actually, that happens in the UK as well. Right? John McKay does end up leaving the country. A lot of these machines are broken by angry weavers anyway, even in Britain. So it doesn't seem as though there's anything special about it. And yet in the 1730s and 40s, he's developing this new technology. And there are loads of other examples. So my, the other one I wrote about once was um, Dungeons and Dragons. You know, this is a game where you don't actually require 20-sided um, die. You don't actually require any a board or anything. Like, it's not even a board game. It's a tabletop game. It's literally people telling stories, but in a very structured way. And it turns out there are some precursors from the 19th century and so on. And perhaps it was invented at some point in the past. But, you know, this game is something that could literally have been invented for thousands of years. Maybe occasionally is. But, you know, it's to the extent that it only take, really takes off in the mid-20th century, that's kind of striking that something can take so long to take off. And what that tells us, I think, about invention is that invention is actually extremely rare. 
And to the extent that inventors or people who are improvers are extremely rare, you know, they also kind of devote their attention to, to particular problems or developing particular things at particular times. And so what matters really is, in, is for promoting innovation is to increase the stock of inventors in the world and also then to and, and pay perhaps less attention to what they're directing their attentions towards, but just to kind of increase the total number of people that we have working on any particular problem or kind of or problems in general, right, as a whole. The thing that distinguishes an inventor from, from just anyone else is that, for me at least, they have this improving mentality or well, they're kind of, they're optimizers. They see the status quo, even if the status quo seems very developed to everyone else, they see problems, they see room for improvement, right? They see that there's a flaw that can be fixed. They find room for greater perfection as they would have been put in the 18th century. They, they see room for improvement is the kind of the common phrase that we might use today. But that seems to be one of the absolutely kind of fundamental features of an inventor's mindset. And what you find room for improvement in, that can be applied to absolutely anything, right? This is something that inventors in general, you know, they're not just usually confined to particular specialisms. Sometimes there are even people who don't have the specialism at all or are entering an industry for the first time without ever having kind of worked in it. They're just kind of outsiders looking in and seeing, okay, well, why aren't you doing this? Or why haven't you optimized on this kind of level and really those sorts of low-hanging fruit those opportunities for improvement are everywhere right it's just that we need more people kind of working and pushing out and kind of plucking those fruit at every stage so yeah a kind of fundamental feature of what i think about invention is that low-hanging fruit are ubiquitous that we shouldn't just kind of say oh well you know if it was such a good idea someone would have done it no actually you should actually try and pluck that fruit and because there's you know it may be that someone did try to pluck it a few years ago, but, you know, they failed for whatever accident of, you know, they took out a bad loan or they had a bad investor or they didn't market it properly or the way in which they tried to implement it didn't quite work. You know, one of the most damaging possible things that people do, I think, that I saw, you know, in the media at least, is that when you see people on Twitter saying X, you've invented X, you know, when someone tries to come up with a new idea and they just say, oh, buses, you've invented buses because you've created a shuttle for something. It's like, what are you doing? Like, no, these people have found, even if it's a marginal improvement, it's not like they're, they're claiming to have invented something from scratch. It's that they're finding an existing thing and trying to make it that tiny bit better. And once you make it that tiny bit better, then the next people will come along and try to improve on that as well. And that is really the ultimate route of progress. And we really shouldn't be deriding it. If you're building a charter city, how do you create a culture of innovation and invention? So I think to an extent, having a kind of concentration of people should in some ways come, it should come naturally that you're going to get these interchanges of ideas. But I think if you really want to take, if you want to take kind of what I research seriously in, in that respect, you should try to make sure that you seed it in a sense with inventors. Encourage, try to poach existing entrepreneurs, whoever they are, and literally bring them to your city, get them to live in your city and interact with people in your city. And, and then the rest will happen. It's through them inspiring other people to be more like them. Like if you live down the road from a famous event, I think you're much more likely to kind of talk to that person and then I kind of interact with them and then adopt the mentality that they have. Now, that may not happen to everyone they interact with. But if they're there, that's going to make the key difference. Right. Because you see in the Industrial Revolution in Britain, you see tiny little villages with very big concentrations of inventors, just because one inventor happened to retire to live in that village, right? You see these kind of exposure effects, if you like, from particular inventors, because invention, this improving mentality spreads from person to person almost virally. 
So what you want is you want to get some super spreaders in, essentially, of invention rather than of disease to your charter city to make sure that it kind of develops that culture. And I think to the extent that you can, if you're organizing a, a charter city, you know, encourage them to set up societies, give them kind of spaces that they can use to interact with one another, you know, perhaps have municipally funded, I suppose, you know, hacker spaces and other kinds of resources available where you can kind of get over that activation energy, if you like, that kind of that very slight barrier to them taking just being kind of inventive people and actually, you know, staying within the city, you know, for a start and actually kind of trying to progress what that city is doing and progress its industries. Why do you leave academia? Well, in some ways, I'm still in academia, but I'm not in formal academia, right? So I still do historical research. You know, I'm still publishing. I've, I've published this, this last book. I'm working on another book, again, for a university press. I don't publish papers because I'm more interested in books. And I, I publish on my Substack because I like publishing for a wider audience. You know, as I said, you know, the key thing that really underlies everything I do is trying to spread that improving mentality further. And I think the more we understand the history of technology, the more lessons there are to be learned and things that we can apply to today. And also just because I love the history of it. I mean, I'm just obsessed with the history of technology kind of for its own sake. But what I found with formal academia is that I was feeling pressure, not necessarily in terms of kind of not like I mean bullied into anything, but definitely the pressure was to publish in outlooks that are if I publish in a, in a gated journal, the chance of people reading it there are actually very, very slim. I'm publishing to satisfy these anonymous people, some of whom, frankly, don't seem to be experts all the time when they're peer reviewing stuff. Like I'm having to kind of jump through a lot of hoops that are entirely artificial and seem like a massive waste of time and, frankly, were quite stressful. And for no good reason, really. It was just to kind of tick a bunch of boxes to get hired by an education institution. So I, I appreciate the freedom I've been able to get through the Substack. And just kind of to work on the problems I think are important without having to worry about, okay, how am I going to repackage this to satisfy peer reviewers at some little journal that, you know, maybe it'll be taken seriously and will get me prestige within this very small group of experts. But ultimately, if my aim here is to try and spread things in a much broader fashion, then I think, you know, it's best to kind of create a niche for myself or a kind of career for myself that is much more kind of public facing. What questions should I have asked you that I did not ask you? Oh, man. That's a really great question. I have no idea. <laughs> you stopped me with that one. I've asked all the good questions. There we go. <laughs> you definitely covered a lot of the boxes. I'm trying to work out if there's anything, any kind. I think I've, I, I mean, the thing is, I, I guess I managed to shoehorn a lot of other points to answers to questions you didn't ask already into my answers. Okay, here's a question you could have asked. You could have asked me, do you need to be an expert to be an inventor? And in some ways, I kind of, I preempted that a little bit. But what is the role of expertise in invention? And my answer to that would be that it helps to be an expert in something you're trying to improve, but it's not absolutely necessary. Or rather, you shouldn't feel that there's a barrier to improving something just because you lack expertise right now. Right, because the way you solve that is through two means. You either reach out to people who are experts and learn from them, but with this idea that you already want to improve something in that field or you've noticed room for improvement. So you can consult with people or you can just self-educate. Right? A lot of the people who invented the Industrial Revolution, you know, at least a third of the people who I've studied, and this is you know, a big sample of you know, almost 1,500 people over a 300-year period. This is in great, great detail. 
at least a third of them were inventing in areas in which they had no prior expertise or training or, you know, even like their father's profession wasn't related to the thing that they ended up improving. The key thing that matters is this, is this improving mentality. And so I think to the extent that we make invention more accessible to people, I think that's actually a really core message is that expertise is not the deal and end. I think that's a really worrying feature about modern society or some modern societies is that we take things like credentialism very seriously. Like we, we notice who is an expert in something and who isn't through the kind of hoops that they jumped through in the past rather than kind of just allowing anything, anyone to do anything. In fact, this may even be the reason why we have that kind of skepticism in the media about, you know, the, the in inverted commas, tech bros, you know, oh, how arrogant these people are to try and reinvent buses or to reinvent, like, train travel through, you know, boring massive holes in the, in the ground, like, or, you know, how arrogant people to try to reinvent the city. Like, why don't they just listen to the urban planners? Like, no, you want people. You want people to be going into new fields and telling people who are the incumbents how they might do things slightly better. And, and you know, the reaction that happens to that is, I think, in some ways natural. People are like, well, you know, get off my lawn. Like, how dare you come in as this interloper and try to disrupt my field? But it's not even necessary disruption. Like, this is improvement. This could be marginal. It can work with people as much as it works against them. And I think that there's a natural protectiveness, which, you know, we all feel, right? If you're an expert, like when I, like, you know, I'm a historian of technology. When I see someone post something wrong about history of technology, it gets my back up. Or, or if they start to get on my turf a bit, you know, and there is that natural gut feeling, which I then have to overcome to say, no, look, this is actually a good thing that someone is coming in. There's more voices here to engage with. And so often I see people who do have expertise do the exact opposite of that. They give in to that gut feeling and they try to denigrate people who are coming into a field or approaching it with fresh eyes. And I think that's extremely negative. I think that's one of the things that we need really to be massively conscious of as a kind of bias that exists in our society. Or kind of, you know, when we talk about you know, all that kind of behavioral economic stuff about like biases that people have, I think incumbent bias is one that we need to be taking more seriously because it manifests itself as credentialism. It manifests itself as opposition often to perfectly good innovations, perfectly good improvements. Cool, great. That's all my questions. So thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast.